Welcome to the Calvary Assembly Podcast with weekly messages from the Calvary Assembly of God Church in Lexington, Nebraska. You can find out more online at lexag.org and on Facebook at Calvary Assembly Lex. Thanks for listening. This is Samuel Gingrich. He's here. He is planting, or has been, has planted. He's in the midst of building the Chi Alpha College Ministry at the University of Nebraska in Omaha. And I remember a couple years ago, we got this message saying, hey, we got this guy that wants to come plant Chi Alpha at UNO. And we said, well, that's pretty cool. And he was actually from Missouri, right? Or he was in Missouri there. So we're like, got to be a great guy, you know, because us Missourians stick together. But he, guys, he is absolutely killing it at UNO. He's doing a great job. He's building that program from the ground up. And they've just had incredible things happen. And uh, so give a big Calvary welcome this morning to Samuel Gingrich, would you? Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much. Let's see, did I get this one? Check, check, check. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Man, it is uh, such a privilege to be with you guys this morning. Seriously, thank you so much, Pastor Rex. Thank you so much, everyone. Just being here, man, I, you know, I was preparing uh, for today, and, and of course I'll share about Chi Alpha, what we're doing, everything, but I just remember as I was preparing for this message, uh, I felt like the Lord spoke something in my heart, and he just reminded me of it uh, when we were worshiping, and it was just simply this. It's like, don't make that which is common or that which is wholly common. I think it's so easy sometimes on Sunday mornings, like we come into a Sunday morning and it's like just the daily routine that we've, we've come for years. And it's just like, man, but remember, it's like we're in the presence of God, in the presence of his house and his home. And man, he's just amazing and wonderful. And it's like, I, I just have this strong conviction on my heart. Uh, maybe that's for someone here today, but like we so easily make these things, which are holy, awesome moments into just common. And let's not do that. Let's remember the significance of these places and so, and what Jesus is doing and what he can do here this morning. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of want to continue in the, in the spirit of that and just, you know, just saying, again, thank you so much for having me here. My name is Samuel Gingrich. I, I am originally from Nebraska. Yes, I was actually born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, but I did spend about nine years in Missouri. It's, it's where I went to school. It's where um, I eventually experienced, you know, just the powerful powerful message uh, that Kalfa brings to reach the secular university campus. And it's there that I was not only on a, on a staff team, it's not only there I interned, but man, I just like, I fell in love with the reality that if we're going to reach this generation, it's going to start on our campuses. It really is. If you even look at, at the demographics of who is leading our, our, some of our largest uh, governments or worlds, it actually, like, for example, I, I know the leader of China currently went to a university, I believe, in Iowa. The previous uh, leader of uh, Israel went to a uh, university in Missouri. And you wouldn't realize this, but the nations are sending their best, their brightest, the future leader, the politicians, even our nation itself. It all begins at the university. And so it was with that conviction, I remember being at Missouri State, uh, which, which where I was doing my Kyle for work, and just the Lord so unburdened my heart with Nebraska. So I'm burning my heart with what I had experienced, the change, transformation, students being committed, giving their life to Christ, literally marketplaces being changed, churches being planted. And I was like, man, God, where was this? Had, I, had you not led me to Missouri, like, would this have been present for me? And it wasn't, and it wouldn't have been. And so UNO is a university with 15,000 students, if you can imagine that. 15,000 students. 
It is a dark place. But man, I'm so excited that we've been able to bring light to the dead center of that. And we are seeing the Lord moving and working in our students' lives. And so, man, it is such a privilege uh, to do this ministry and to see it coming back uh, really to, you know, maybe really our eastern side of our state and stuff. And so thank you for being a part of that. And so I, I do have a little bit of banner set up there. And if you'd like to talk with me more afterwards or even sign up for a newsletter where you can hear about what's going on in the ministry, what's happening in, at UNO, man, I'd love to, to just continue to keep you informed and so you can know about that. So just you can meet me after uh, the service up there. But, man, I just want to uh, start off by getting to share just a little bit of story about uh, international students, if I can. And this is the testimony, really, of a young lady. Um, she was an international student from Mexico. And basically what that kind of means is, is, let me give you some background, is she grew up uh, culturally Catholic, which for her meant she really had no idea about a personal relationship with Jesus. In fact, she never even really knew who God was or what that even meant. And so she just grew up doing some motion stuff, but really there was, there was no really evidence of a life with Christ in her life or in her family's life. And she had a beautiful, wonderful family. But when she was about 12 years old or, or around that age, her family went through a tragic accident where she was actually in the car with her mother when they had an accident. Her mother passed away. Her brother, who was also in the car, became paralyzed for the rest of his life. And all of a sudden, a beautiful and amazing family crumbled. And this young lady had to all of a sudden become the mother of her entire family. She had many, many siblings. And eventually, you got to understand, when she we got to about 19 age, like that kind of age, she just was always filled with the sorrow, without hope, without any sort of love, and she just couldn't take it anymore. And that culture, kind of the priority is like, hey, you know, you know you're, okay, you're a woman, you should stay home, you should learn all these things. And so, but she just knew there was no life for her. And she was desperate to escape, desperate to get out. And she thought the only place where she could, and this is the story of many, many others, is she believed it was at the university. She didn't know English. She didn't know the language. And yet she left her family, left everything to go to a university so that she might be able to learn the language of English. And she might be able to find a job and a career and work her way out. And so she goes to the university expecting to, to find the solution. And you know what she encountered? She encountered more loneliness. She encountered more isolation, more brokenness, and just, you know, sin abounding, right? And constantly, it's like she didn't really know why. She didn't have a relationship with God. But, but there was always these people trying to bring her into their lifestyles, which were not healthy, not good, very sinful lifestyles. For some reason, she just said, no, no, no. Until one day, she's like, why do I keep saying no? I literally have nothing else to live for. And so she made a decision. You know what? This weekend, I'm going to go with them for the first time. Because maybe they have something that I've never had. Maybe the joy. Well, man, can we just give, uh, you know, praise to God? Because within that same week, there was one college student who began to invite this young lady to go to this, like, kind of like a worship service gathering. It wasn't a Sunday, but it was like a worship gathering. She had never before ever stepped foot in a church, <laughs> never didn't know anything. And she didn't want to go, but she's like, but this is like my one friend. And if I don't go, she might not be my friend anymore. 
and she, I, I like to go dancing. She might not go dancing with me anymore. And so she was trying to make a decision between do I go hang out with this, this, uh, this party lifestyle, I'll do all this, or should I go to this, this service with my friend? And she decided she could do both. <laughs> like, why'd she have to choose? And so she'd go to that service, and then the next weekend she would go out do that. So she shows up to a room, maybe about this size or so, but there's about 300 or so people in this place. And you know what they were doing? They're all worshiping God just like we were doing. They were raising their hands. And she had never seen that before. And the first thought in her mind was, these people are crazy. What are they doing? Like, they're lifting their hands to an invisible God, someone they can't see. They are so dumb, and I'm the only smart person in this whole room. And then she's like, wait a minute. Because she was a very smart person in that room. And she thought to herself, wait, there's 300 people here. There's only one me. If they're experiencing something that I'm not, I will not be the only one in this place to not experience that. And so she decided for the first time in her life, she would pray. So she prayed to God, and this is a quote from what she said. She said, God, I am willing to make a fool of myself and call upon a God that I cannot see one time to find out if you're really real. Because if you are real, then I want to live for you, God. And if you are real, then show yourself to me tonight. Because I could never be more sincere than I am tonight. And if you do not show yourself to me, then I will know that you are not real and I will never again seek to find you. With all of her being, she meant that. And immediately after she prayed that, man, the Spirit of God just came down upon her. The way she describes it is she's like, she can't imagine it, but it's like this darkness just lifted. And for the first time in her life, she felt joy. She felt love. She felt as light as a feather that almost all of a sudden, she went from praying that to laughing at all these people calling him crazy to all of a sudden going, lifting her hands and worshiping Jesus. She had such a profound encounter with Jesus Christ in that moment that they gave an altar call at the end to be prayed for and she was really bummed out because she wanted to go down to be prayed for but she's like well I already know Jesus so I can't go pray for to go down to be prayed for because she knew in that moment she had met God and it didn't stop there though because how many of y'all know if you experience God like that if you find him for the first time especially you know a 19 year old finding God for the first time it can't help but just spill out it can't help but just be out and so she goes back to her school and one of the things that the Holy Spirit tells her to do is, is hey you need to go apologize to all the girls that you've wronged which was a lot actually uh, to the point when they saw the transformation in her life over 40 girls gave their life to Jesus and they're like basically like a revival breaks out because of what God had done and transformed her life. That's the story of my mom. I'm here because one college student had the courage to invite a lonely international student to simply come and see who God was. Man, that's why my heart is so passionate about this thing that I'm doing, about reaching our college campuses. Because I couldn't be here without it. It transformed and created a new legacy of discipleship. 
that young lady was a Christ ambassador to my mother. I have the joy of now carrying, carrying that legacy of discipleship that began with my mom to reach you know. What a privilege. And really, you, you, maybe you already know this, but Chi Alpha is a, a Greek acronym meaning Christ ambassador to the truest sense of what that could mean. We disciple students and we send students as God's ambassadors back to the university, to the marketplace, and ultimately truly to the world. And I can imagine, you know, right now, as uh, Pastor Rex mentioned, we are in the process of pioneering. We're actually in our second year of being on campus. Only the second year. But I can imagine that here at Calvary Assembly, that once this church also had its beginning, that there were people who prayed and believed that God had a plan for the people of Lexington, and that there would one day be a gospel presence to comfort, confront, and reconcile people of Lexington to Jesus. And you are the fruit of those prayers in that work. And perhaps even now you find yourselves praying those same prayers for others. And wouldn't it be amazing and awesome to go back to that year when this church was first started, knowing what you know now, seeing what you've seen now, and you could tell them, you could encourage them, because they couldn't see it, but you could. And you could say, hold on, keep going. You have no idea what is in store and what's going to come of this. You see, it's easy to encourage when you know the end result, but it's challenging when you can't see what's next. And while planning Chi Alpha right now, we feel that daily that we don't know what's next. <laughs> I don't know what students we're going to encounter next. But I do know one thing, is that when we sow in faith, God always brings fruit. So I'd love to share with you a really short video to show you some of the fruit that we've already had this year that happened earlier this last semester at one of our retreats. So we can go ahead and I'd love to show that video. Thank you. 
And I literally cannot see that without just crying because I don't know if you catched it in there, but those were students, baptizing students. Can you imagine going through college? Some, many of you, maybe that was a few years ago, some of you, those, you know, a little more years than that ago. Can you, remember, can you imagine getting to baptize people as a college student? I'm so amazing. The, the second guy that was baptizing is actually a student that I had the privilege to baptize last year as he gave his life to Jesus. And man, just the power of seeing their stories, and I can't help but think of my mother's story and just wonder, Lord, what, what are you going to do with their lives? How wonderful it is to see new legacies of generations that are going to transform families in our church and our communities in the years to come. So I just want to pray, and then I believe the Lord... Uh, has a message for us this morning. So Jesus, we welcome you here. God, we don't treat that which is holy as common. God, we, we give you your proper place in our hearts. I'm saying, Jesus, that we recognize that you're always at work drawing and leading us to know you deeper and to help lead those around us to know you deeper too. And so, Father, would you just speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you, would you bring your righteous conviction to our hearts? And would you teach us, Jesus, that which you would show us. In your mighty name, Lord, amen. Well, uh, you know, it's no secret at this point, right, that I'm a missionary. And so my favorite topic, of course, is missions. I love it so much. And I think so much of, of what my heart has been formed in this is just wanting to simplify. And I work with students so much, and so many times with them, I have to just kind of simplify things to its most basic components. And I love that because it makes it so digestible and understanding. And today I want to share with you something that is such a, a meaningful message to my heart. And it's this. It is, what is the heart of missions? Because we've heard missions. You, you guys have had missionaries come here and speak before. But what does it mean for us to live a daily life of mission? A daily life and so I want to talk today about the heart of missions. And the, the verse that we could probably all quote, I have learned today, it is the verse of the, uh, the youth group here, is Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. We've probably all heard that before, right? Go therefore and make disciples of every nation and tongue, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we could, we could talk this service about how it's a command. It's for all believers. It's for, you know, a timeless uh, command that Christ gives all of us who would follow him. But I'll be honest, um, as a young person growing up and also someone who went to a Bible college, I never quite grasped the reality of what this actually meant for me personally. And so I actually did. I, I went to a Bible college in Missouri. That's why I was down there originally. And I remember that, you know, the privilege of being at a Bible college is you have this thing called chapel. It doesn't happen on Sundays. It happens like every single day but Sunday. So you're basically at chapel every single day, and then you go to church on Sundays. So we got to hear a lot of speakers. And being at a university like that, we had the privilege of having, oh my gosh, like world-renowned missionaries, people who had literally, you know, like basically almost given their life, everything but giving their life for, for the gospel, based at that point, come and share with us. And so I remember like hearing from heroes of faith all the time, and they talk about missions and they talk about selling all that they had. They talk about the challenge of learning a new language, literally living in dirt huts, being imprisoned, seeing people who would give their life to Christ and only to be killed then within the following weeks. And they would talk about this mission field and the great sacrifices and how amazing it is to see God move. And they'd always end their like, sermons like this. They'd say, and you know what? You can come and join me this summer to Nepal or to all these places. And we'd have uh, all these big, like, call, come, serve. 
And I'll be honest, as a young student, um, I was like, hmm, that sounds fun. And so we would have um, the missions sign up, and I remember that we would always have their table, which maybe one or two students would have, and there'd be a long line for Costa Rica, like, like those places where you know like you're not going to quite face and experience that. Because like, I just, at that point in time, and maybe you've felt this before, I just realized, yo, missions is not my calling. I like job security. I like a 401k, I like family, I like health insurance. Like the, the concept of that sounds amazing. And I'm pretty sure I probably have to give all that stuff up if it would mean to be a missionary. And I found it easy to dismiss these stories simply by saying, man, I just don't have that level of faith. Like, or I would go, oh, I would go, but God would have to open up heaven, a light would have to shine down and he'd have to literally speak to me directly. Anyone, anyone been there? Is that what Matthew, and I would ask myself, these stories, these amazing stories I'm hearing, is that really what Matthew 28 is saying? Is that really what it means to be missional? Because that's all that I, that's the only reference I had for that verse. Like many other things, it's easy to create human expectations around things when we don't start first with the word of God. And for me, my idea of missions was formed more by these people I heard, these fantastical stories and stuff, rather than simply the truth of what the word of God was saying. Because Matthew 28 is a command. It is an essential part of Christianity. But I believe we need to renew our definition of what mission means. We need to renew and look to Scripture to understand the heart of what this verse is getting to. Or else we run the risk of living a life where we have made living missionally optional. Oh, that's for the pastor. That's for the missionary. Oh, that's for my grandparent. That's for my parent. That's their job. Yet Jesus would command us and say that it is all of our responsibility, that we are all in ministry. We are all, whether we're going to school, whether we're going to the career place, whether we actually are in ministry full-time, discipleship, being missional, I should say, is still a part of our description. And this is the heart of missions, summarized in a simple phrase. And I think we can all understand this, but I'm just going gonna, gonna to put it so simple that you could walk out of here, remember this, you know, hopefully for many times to come. And it's simply this. This is the heart of mission. It's that what God does in you, he wants to do through you. Say it one more time. What God does in you, he wants to do through you. Not understanding what God has done in you, I believe, leads to our, very commonly, our missional hesitation and anxiety. Someone who just met Jesus, like my mom, yo, they know what God has done in them. And so I'd ask you, what has God done in you? What has he saved you from? What has he reconciled you from? What has he rescued you from? And has it become common, or does it still have the weight of the holy moment that it was? And so our, our scripture for today is Matthew 2, or sorry, Mark 2, 13 through 17. And I actually want to start in verse 15, and we're going to come back to 13, but I feel like it's important to understand a little bit about 15 through 17 first. And so it reads in Mark 2, 15, it says, 
And as Jesus, this is Jesus, as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, some of y'all, you heard that, and literally you're like, well, I know someone who's worked for the IRS. I don't know if I'd call them that, like, evil or, or all that stuff. But we, we have a general sense where we know tax collectors were often grouped with these group of people called sinners. And unless you know the historical context, it's hard to understand the gravity of what the Jewish culture believed and thought about tax collectors. You see, during that time in Israel's history, uh, Israel was actually dominated and had been dominated by the Roman Empire. Maybe you heard of them. They dominated the entire known world at that time. And the Romans, basically their job is like when they would take over a territory, of course, they would want to tax their new territory, tax the new people. But the Romans were smart because they knew that if they put their own people in charge of collecting tax, they would be cheated. They wouldn't get everything that they wanted from the taxes. And so what the Romans would do is that they would recruit local people and they would basically say, hey, we want you to go collect taxes for us because you'll know what to charge. You'll know what they truly own. It would be the same like, kind of idea of like, if Canada conquered the United States and then Canada you know, recruits local Americans to basically tax one another and all that stuff. You know, that's kind of a silly example on that. But even in that, that is basically what was happening. And so the Jewish people saw their fellow Jews who were taxing them as betrayers. Because basically to make your income as a tax collector, you know what you had to do? You had to basically say, okay, the government's requiring, let's say, $10 from you. Now I'm going to actually charge you $15. Or I'm going to charge you $13. And the tax collector would pocket that which was over the top of the tax they owed and return the tax to the government. And so there were people who literally were getting rich off the backs of their own people, who are supposed to be the people of God. And so the Jewish people hated the tax collectors. So much so that between the writing of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was actually uh, rabbis and Jewish teachers who would write texts to help the community of the Jewish, the Israelite people understand the word of God. But in the midst of that, we know whenever humans start doing stuff, they kind of put their own thoughts, own opinions into things. And so they actually would write about tax collectors specifically in their rabbinical writings and stuff. And so I, I got a few excerpts for us so that simply we can just understand the cultural context of really what they believed and thought of the day and age. So I have a slide up there. This first one comes from the Talmud. And they wrote this saying, a tax collector is disqualified as a judge or a witness in court, they should be expelled from the synagogue, church, and a cause of disgrace to his family. Wow. In the Mishnah, it says, if a tax collector enters your home, your house, your house is unclean. Guys, this is a society obsessed with being clean or unclean. And by your simple occupation, everywhere you went... Being unclean means you could never be in the presence of God. You could never be with God. And that last one, this one cracks me up. It says, one may vow that something is true to a tax collector, even if it is not. <laughs> Guys, this, this is Ten Commandments. Like, these are the, the Jewish, like, we have the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie. And yet, their hatred was so deep that they were writing exceptions 
for even the laws of God. So maybe now you can understand a little bit truly the heart, the cultural perspective around these tax collectors. You see, there was an issue, there was a problem in the Jewish culture. There was many. But we know that when Jesus came, that truly, that Jesus was not defined by culture, but he defined culture. And so what Jesus saw is that there was an issue with them, and this was the problem, is that too often Jewish people, Israeli people, they defined what they loved by what they hated. Their allegiance to God, to their nation, was proven by who they hated, by the hating sinners, by hating tax collectors, by hating leopards, uh, tax collectors, and Gentiles. It proved that you were a good Jew. It proved that you truly belonged. And in fact, I don't think this is an issue that just the Jewish people had. I think this is kind of uh, something that persists even to this day, right? And I actually have a perfect example of how I know this still exists today. So are we okay? I need confirmation. Are we okay with getting just a little bit uncomfortable this morning? Just a little bit? Yeah, good? Okay. All right. I'm going to put something up in a second, and it's going to prove to you my point 100%. So we can go ahead and put that up. The next slide. Mmm. Mmm. I am a Cornhusker fan through and through, and I'm not going to lie. When I see this symbol anywhere... And I get so perplexed when I see it in Nebraska. I'm like, why is that? Like, I was driving here. Like, why is that on that car right now? Like, like my first instinct is, like, I know I am a true Husker fan by almost my guttural reactions to sometimes seeing this. Let's put that next one up. Yeah, okay. That's, for some of y'all, a different generation. I understand. Whew. We get it. What about our government, too, right? It seems like to belong to one side or the other, like it necessitates just the complete hatred of those, anyone that would be on the other side. What about even church? You know, there's sometimes, there's some people who they could say, hey, I don't know really quite what I believe, but I know what I don't believe, and it's what that church down the street believes. You see, so many times we, we continue to define our allegiances and define our love by the things that we set ourselves in opposition to. And you see, Jesus saw this, but Jesus, this was his solution is that he wanted to challenge the broken perspective that exists in all of us. And his solution was this, is that he saw brokenness in the world as an opportunity to show love. For me, that I was sure it should be an opportunity to show love. <laughs> you see, Jesus came at the most divided time in the world's ancient world's history. Roman conquest, this Jewish nation, there was literally, he recruited Simon the Zealot, who the Zealots were people who literally set themselves to overthrow the government, like it was a well-known fact that they were actively working to overthrow the government. And yet Jesus saw this brokenness of these people as an opportunity that the love of God could be truly, fully revealed. So let's go back, let's read Mark 2.15, and maybe you'll understand the weight of what Mark is trying to convey here. It says, 15, as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
It continues and it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Are you getting this? Jesus is challenging a culture of hatred, and it is just making those Pharisees so uncomfortable. If you were one of us, Jesus, man, you wouldn't be doing this. And instead, he welcomes the hurting, the shameful, and the broken. And to me, this reveals, and I hope it does to you, it profoundly reveals what kind of God God is. Jesus doesn't look at hurt and pain and sin and occupation and political party and religious beliefs and age as an obstacle for his love. But instead, you know what he sees it as? An opportunity to show his love truly to this world that needs it so desperately. Do you see brokenness as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus? It's a good question. Good one to think on. Well, Mark 2, 13 through 14, we, we kind of, let's go back to that now because I want to have a perfect example of just getting to see this kind of play out in a really practical way. And see, I just kind of want to uh, set the backdrop. Basically, Jesus, you know, it, this is pretty early in, in the book of Mark. And so, you know, Jesus is early in his ministry, and he is still in the process of calling his disciples. He hasn't quite called all of them yet, but he's traveling and preaching and, and sharing and, and working miracles. And we have this encounter in Mark 2, 13, where it says that Jesus went out again, meaning this is something he did on a common basis. He went out again besides the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. I love this in 14. It says, and as he passed by, meaning, in other words, let me put it in today's context, as he's going to work, as he's going to class, as he's picking up groceries, as he's dropping off the mail, as he's uh, going about his normal day, as Jesus, as he passed by, it says this, that he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and Levi followed him. You see, we also have this account in Luke 5, actually, and it says that he rose, he left everything that he had, and he began to follow Jesus. There was probably no bigger defining moment, no more holy moment in Levi's life than this moment, because Jesus was probably the first person in his life to see past the tax booth to see past that which defined him by the nation as someone who could never come close to God. And he saw him and not his occupation. And this is what Jesus, I believe, has done in you. And what he's done in me, or I know what he wants to do in you. is in the midst of your brokenness, your sin, and everything you have, quote, done wrong, whatever your tax collector booth might be, he loves you, and he wants to ask you, and he has asked you to leave it all behind and to follow him. 
God would have every right, wouldn't he, to hate our brokenness, to hate our sin. But instead of seeing it as an opportunity, but instead, he saw it's an opportunity for him to send his son so that his love could become manifest in our lives and he could wash away our sin and that which defined us by this world as deserving of death. This is the transformative and the healing message of the gospel. This, I believe, is what God has done in you. And the beautiful thing is that it looks so different for all of us. But remember that simple definition of the heart of missions? What God has done in you, he wants to do, say with me, through you, right? What God has done in you, he wants to do through you. So if this is what God has done in you, then truly, what is it that he wants to do through us? I believe he wants to take you from someone who sees booths to seeing children of God. To seeing children of God. You know, sometimes, like, I, I like to compare it, uh, like, what it means to follow Jesus sometimes. Like, I, I think of our modern ideas sometimes of, like, worship. Uh, sometimes we... Uh, come to a worship service, and we're just so excited because we just want to get lost in the presence of Jesus. Like, I mean, I'm there with you. Like, I want to be with Jesus in his presence. And it just feels like, man, if Jesus was here, like, in person, like, we would just have this amazing worship session. And sometimes that can be our idea around it. But it's interesting to me when I think of the 12 disciples because they actually spent and were actually in the presence of Jesus, not just for a moment, but for three years and nowhere in scripture does it describe it as a giant worship party at all. Actually, in fact, the closer the disciples drew to Jesus, the more they reached other people, the more they loved other people, meaning the fruit of being with Jesus was what we're talking about, was this love of others. The closer the disciples drew to Jesus, the more they reached others. You see, Jesus could have died, like, I really believe Jesus could have died at any point in diet time for our sins, right? He really could have, because he came, he was a perfect sacrifice. At any time, he could have, but he chose specifically to spend three years. Why? Because he wanted to teach the disciples how to do this, how to love, how to see people, and they had to watch him reaching tax collectors, reaching sinners, reaching people through this. He was teaching them how to love the lepers, the adulterers, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the demon-possessed, and the poor. And so when I read Matthew 28, 19 through 20 now, versus when I was younger, I read it with this perspective in mind. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I think the beautiful thing about the story in Mark is that there's actually a little bit more depth that we can draw from this. But we have to look at two other Gospels to kind of understand it. You see, because this account also appears in, again, I mentioned the Gospel of Luke, but it also appears in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, we learn that Levi is actually the name, is another name for Matthew. Meaning that Levi is actually Jesus' disciple who would go on to be an apostle and the writer of the entire gospel of Matthew. 
Isn't that pretty incredible? That a man once hated by his country, a social and an unclean outcast, had within himself the capacity to turn his life around for Christ and to write for us the entire gospel of Matthew. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a follower of Jesus without the gospel of Matthew? Oh my gosh, it's such an important uh, text that we read to understand who God is, understand Jesus, and to follow him. And none of that would have happened without Jesus first stopping as he was simply passing by. What would have happened if Matthew never wrote his gospel? It was within my mother the capacity to win over 40 girls to the Lord. But what if that girl never invited her? What would have happened if that girl never stopped to simply invite someone that the whole world would have dismissed? I certainly would not be here to this, in this moment. And so, worship team, you can go ahead. And, and so I have a simple question for us to reflect on. A very, very simple question to reflect on. And it is simply this. Who are you passing by? Who are you passing by? Who should you be stopping to talk to? Who is God calling you to reach? Who is God calling you to love? Who is God calling you to see past their tax booth, past their Iowa t-shirt? And are you defining your love for Jesus by who or what you hate? Or are you seeing the brokenness of this world? as an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. You see, reaching the university campus for me, there's so much to like not like about the university. Oh my gosh. I mean, I could go on and on and on about the things that is so hard about that place. But when I see it, my heart aches because I know God has something better. God has something greater. And the heart of every missionary, the heart of every Christian should be to see that which is broken and to know that we have a God who can restore, that can fix and renew. And that he has chosen you and I to be the conduit, to be the person who stops. I think that's the greatest thing that makes a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, is a Christian should be the one who stops, who does not pass by. And so today, we're just, we're going to sing through one song, but I believe that there's a way in which we can respond even here in this room. And the first way is that maybe you're here, maybe you're listening online or watching online, and you know what it's like to be passed by. Oh, you're very well aware of it. You can relate probably to Levi a lot in this story. And I believe that God wants you to know that he sees you, he loves you, I believe he's calling you to follow him today. I believe that even as we worship, that you could meet Jesus like my mother did. Or two, I just know that as I was talking for maybe the rest of us in this room, that God has been highlighting someone to you right now, right? Maybe there's that one name, that one person that keeps coming to your mind. It's that person that like, oh, they're going to the water cooler. I'm going to wait like five minutes and then, you know, then I'll make my way up there. Who is that person that God would put on your heart 
Maybe it's a person that sits next to you or you see them every day or at the grocery store or at the gas station. I grew up my whole life passing by UNO in Omaha until the Lord drew my heart and said, Samuel, would you stop? Because no one else is stopping. And so as we respond, uh, I'm going to be, you know, in this area, Pastor Rex will be here too. And if you would like prayer, whether to meet Jesus today or anything else in your heart, you're welcome to come to these altars. But if not, in your seat, I want you to begin praying and say, God, would you orchestrate a divine moment this week when I can stop and have an impactful and meaningful time loving someone that I know you're asking me to. And I want you to leave here with that name on your heart and on your mind and a commitment to Jesus to reach him and to reach out. How are you doing? And so let me pray and then let's respond. And so Jesus, we know, God, I believe even right now, God, you're putting someone on our mind and God, it's not us just conjuring up a name. It is by your Holy Spirit that it is in our mind, God, because you have a new destiny, a new future, a new prospect for that person, God. And you are want to use us, if we're willing, to bring about that change in their life through your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray right now that if anyone in this room feels passed by, God, that they would sense you calling them to this altar. Sense you calling them, God, to respond and to receive your love like Levi did. There's a reason why all these people who were the social outcasts came to Jesus. And Jesus, it was because you met them with the true healing ointment of your salvation, which restored and renewed and continues to do that in us today. So Jesus, thank you that what you do in us, you seek to do through us. In Jesus' name.